Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app. Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A crazed killer prowling the streets of Manhattan the night before 9-11. It's evocative and absurd. I mean, sure, it's possible, but it's extremely unlikely. So unlikely, I'm not going to waste your time seriously considering it. In 2001, there was one murder in the NYPD's first precinct, a single non-9-11 murder in Lower Manhattan. So the idea of a random killer murdering Sneha on September 10th, 2001 is ludicrous. You might say, well, what about Sneha's, quote, lifestyle? If she met random people at bars, at lesbian bars, what about that? First off, Sneha was probably safer at lesbian bars than at hetero bars packed with men. And the idea of what? A lesbian killer pulling off the perfect crime on the eve of 9-11? It's laughable. Here's Mark Bogatin, Ron Lieberman's attorney. Could be a victim of random violence and crazed killer running through our Manhattan that night. Okay, and so Detective Stark, he testified at the hearing. He said, it's very rare that somebody is murdered in that fashion without a body ever turning up. 
And that's really what this boils down to. No body. Remember, we're talking about Manhattan, an island packed with 1.6 million people. A body almost certainly would have been found on land or in a river. So when considering explanations for Sneha's disappearance, I think we can safely cross off random act of violence. But what about a non-random act of violence? What if Sneha was killed by someone she knew? Maybe even accidentally during a heated argument. From iHeartRadio, this is Missing on 9-11, the story of one woman who vanished on the eve of history and my quest to find her. I'm your host, John Walzak. The NYPD, private investigators, and attorneys all focused on the idea of random violence. You see it repeatedly in court records. Quote, a random act of foul play, a random act of violence, a random act of New York City street violence, that they didn't seriously consider people Sneha knew as possible suspects strikes me as disingenuous. Most murdered women are killed by men they know, and most people especially cops, private investigators, and attorneys know that. What makes you certain that it wasn't maybe somebody she knew? Like, well, it wouldn't have been somebody she knew because then that's something you can investigate. Did anybody have a grudge? Was there a beef? Was there disagreement? Was she involved in any type of vendetta, even with some like, crazy neighbor? Maybe it was a crazy neighbor upstairs that she had nothing to do with, but he thought or she thought, you know, she was sending radio waves into his brain and then... But no, there, if it was anybody that she knew or within her circle or... That's something you could investigate. There'd be some some sign of that, and and they spoke. To, connected spoke to everybody. Do you, do you think that the NYPD really fully investigated this though? Because when I looked at Detective Stark's words in court, it seemed very much like from the get go that he just assumed that Sneha was a trade center victim. As far as I can see from what his testimony was and the police reports that I did read, yeah, they did all the basic stuff and they did everything that was required. So they said, you do the financial records, obviously they did that, public records, financial records. And they spoke to everybody who knew her, work and family, friends. That's how, what else do you have, work, family, friends. They did all that. And if there had been some, and they asked those people, obviously those, those basic questions you just brought up. Did anybody have a grudge against her? Was she involved in any type of disputes? And again, it's theoretically possible of some dispute that nobody knew about. So I said, maybe it was a crazy neighbor in the building, you know? I mean, but that's like, you got, I would say that's stress clutching at straws. I mean, that's highly unlikely. They, there's no evidence that they, they pursued that, whether or not she had a dispute, grudge, disagreement. Sure, you can't rule out 100% Craig's killer. You can't rule out 100% maybe there was some grudge. And there were grudges. Sneha did have enemies, people who were not investigated as thoroughly as they would have been if 9-11 had not occurred. What makes you so sure that it could not have been foul play at the hands of somebody that she knew. I'm sure that it's not foul play, uh, as I am that it's not aliens, because what the detective said, bodies show up, because there has to be some evidence. They did speak to everybody, and you say somebody she knew. 
Somebody she's new, it's even even more unlikely because that, that would have been a trace. It would have been, yeah, she had a beef with this person, had a dispute. Oh, she upset that person. Or that person, as I said, maybe it was a neighbor in the building. But she, she was playing the radio too loud and there was a psycho. And, but, but there's but no she, evidence of that. But she had she had a dispute at the time, at least with two people right. that she knew. So Doctors. She, she did with, with the man who she accused of assaulting her. Right. Um, that was, and that was a court proceeding, and he brought charges against my her. Understanding he didn't is, kill her. My understanding is he lived in the same building and down he the hall. Did he kill her? Come on. Now you're getting no, 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 even I, more afield than, uh, than the people in court were. No, I'm not saying, but I'm saying, you know, if you're running through all the things, wandering the streets of Manhattan or, you know, aliens or somebody she's involved in a court dispute with. I'm sure the police spoke to him. I don't yeah. know. I'm sure they obviously he'd be the primary person to speak to. I'm sure they spoke to him. I asked retired NYPD detective Richard Stark about the possibility of murder. You don't believe foul play is even possible, though? No, I don't see no reason in it. I don't see, you know. Well, in the beginning, maybe we just looked at Ron, because they, you know, so they had a fight, and yeah, we, yeah, all options are open. That he possibly did something to her, that was, that was on the table, too, in the beginning. In the beginning. Me and Ron met about 30 times. So we were always meeting. He was always coming over to the precinct, and... But he's got to, you know, I just didn't see it, him doing it. That's all. I know. I know. The husband is always suspect number one. But no one I interviewed seriously thinks that Ron killed Sneha. Everyone described him as a gentle soul, someone stricken with grief who went to great lengths to find her. Do I think Ron is telling the truth about everything? No. But do I think he killed Sneha? No, I don't. However, I do think the way investigators handled Ron is important because there are signs they didn't seriously investigate him. And I think that says more about the investigation than it does about Ron. Take, for example, Ron's computer. Detective Stark obtained it. He did his job. But when he turned it over to the NYPD's Computer Investigation and Technology Unit, or CITU, well, they did not analyze it. Instead, it went through an incompetent circle. Detective Stark got the computer, gave it to CITU, it sat there, no one examined it, and Ron got it back. Any other case, this would be considered lazy, sloppy police work. But before you blame the NYPD, know that the person who chose to release the computer was actually Assistant District Attorney Linda Fairstein. If you recognize her name, it's probably from the infamous Central Park jogger case in which Fairstein helped convict five innocent boys of a brutal rape they did not commit. According to NYPD records, Fairstein released Ron's computer without having it analyzed because, quote, she thought it was not relevant and the husband needed it for work, end quote. I reached out to Fairstein. She said she does remember this case, clearly, she tentatively agreed to an interview, but she flaked out. She never followed through. So I have no comment from her. If you rule out Ron, two people still stick out to me as possible suspects. One is the doctor Sneha accused of sexually assaulting her at a bar in June 2001. On September 10th, 2001, the day she disappeared, Sneha was in court because of this doctor, because he pressed charges against her. Remember, after telling the NYPD that this doctor assaulted her, Sneha then allegedly recanted and proceeded to harass the doctor and his wife. 
It's understandable then that the doctor may have been upset with Sneha, angry at her. So should we consider the doctor a suspect? Well, immediately, I saw a red flag. Sneha and the doctor lived in the same apartment building on the same floor. I thought, wow, okay, maybe at some point on September 10th, Sneha went to the doctor's apartment, confronted him, and he harmed her. But here's the thing. By September 10th, Ron and Sneha had already moved to a different building in a different part of the city. By that point, they no longer lived in the same building on the same floor as the doctor. In addition, neither the NYPD nor Ron considered the doctor a suspect. The NYPD cleared the doctor. The final person I considered was Sneha's younger brother, John, for four key reasons. First, John lived at 88 Greenwich Street, only five minutes from Century 21, where Sneha was last seen alive. In fact, when Ron came home the night of 9:10 to an empty apartment, that's where he thought she was, at John's apartment. Second, John lied multiple times, most notably to WABC. He made up a story saying he spoke to Sneha on 9-11 while she was in the towers helping people. Later, he admitted that was a lie. John also said multiple times that Detective Stark did not interview him, but I obtained NYPD records proving that Detective Stark did interview John by phone on September 29th, 2001. So another lie. Third, when Sneha disappeared, she and John were on bad terms. Ron testified in court that they had been fighting. Fourth, when questioned about when he last saw or spoke to Sneha, John gave multiple conflicting answers. On September 29, 2001, he told Detective Stark that he last spoke to Sneha six weeks prior, around August 18th. Later, in court, he testified that he last saw and or spoke to Sneha two and a half weeks before 9-11, around August 25th. And John told me, yes, I interviewed him, that he last saw Sneha eight or nine days before 9-11, around September 2nd or 3rd. August 18th, August 25th, September 2nd or 3rd. So yeah, I was suspicious. I am suspicious. John lived only five minutes from Century 21, where Sneha was last seen alive. He lied about speaking to Sneha on 9-11. He lied about not speaking to Detective Stark. He and Sneha were fighting before she disappeared. And he gave multiple conflicting answers about when he last saw and or spoke to Sneha. According to Hugo Kugia's Newsday article, which ran on September 26, 2001, Sneha emailed her mom and John right before she disappeared. I don't know what she said in the emails or why her family never mentioned them again after September 2001. Initially, John did not respond to multiple interview requests. But on my second to last night in New York, reporting this story, he agreed to meet me the next day, an hour north of the city, at a cafe. We spoke for nearly four hours.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. 
I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John didn't allow me to record our conversation, but I did take copious notes. Our interview took place in public, and it was observed by our assistant producer, Chris. Sitting across from me in a wingback chair in a cafe in the midst of COVID, John described Sneha's disappearance and everything that followed as a mindfuck. The last 20 years have been extremely painful and exhausting for his family, he said. He loves Sneha. He misses her. She never got to meet John's son, who was born after 9-11. Sneha, he said, was, quote, the most sophisticated woman I've ever known. Empathetic, approachable, authentic, social, charming, quick, witty, dynamic, confident, ambitious, and very brave. So smart, it was intimidating. She was a progressive feminist who supported the LGBTQ community. When I asked if she identified as a member of the LGBTQ community, he deflected, joked about card carrying, then said, to his knowledge, that no, she didn't. He showed me photos of Sneha as a child. There she was, a happy kid at Disney World. He also showed me her date book from 1990 to 91. I asked if she kept a journal in 2001. He said no. I asked if he still has emails from back then, emails from Sneha. Again, he said no. During our conversation, John said multiple times that the turning point in Sneha's life was the alleged sexual assault in June 2001, the bar incident. NYPD records show that Sneha recanted five days after filing an official complaint. Not true, John said. Sneha was assaulted, he said, by a fellow doctor, a colleague at Cabrini Medical Center. Before the bar incident, Sneha was okay, he said. She was doing well. She was happy. After, she was depressed. She started drinking more. John believes that had the bar incident not occurred, Sneha would still be alive. It's why Sneha lost her job, he said. Why Cabrini retaliated against her. Why she moved to a new apartment near the Trade Center right before 9-11. Why she died. But there's a problem with John's story. It's not accurate. See, Cabrini decided not to renew Sneha's contract in May 2001, one month before the bar incident in June 2001. John described himself as deeply spiritual and said he seeks out simplicity. He loves music and plays the piano. He told me that Sneha, six years older than him, was like a second mother. In the summer of 2000, John moved to 88 Greenwich Street, near the Trade Center. His apartment had a wraparound balcony at the corner of Washington and Rector. Quote, a view to die for, a view of the towers. He was young and happy, an entrepreneur. He felt alive. Sneha used to come over all the time, he said. She would tell him about cancer patients she befriended, and she, John and Ron, would dine and drink and talk and live. 
John and Ron were close. They still are. John refers to Ron as his brother. In fact, they spoke earlier that day, before our interview, he said. John told me that the last time he saw Sneha was eight or nine days before 9-11, September 2nd or 3rd. He went over to her apartment. She was happy to see him, but he could tell she was still struggling. That night, Sneha, John, and John's girlfriend went to dinner at Mustang Sally's, he said, near FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology. What did they do after dinner? John said, quote, I don't want to talk about it. I asked if he ever spoke to Sneha again. He said no. Today, John is 45. On 9-11, he was 25. At the time, he worked from home, running an advertising and marketing company. He remembers September 10, 2001 as a beautiful day and said the weather was incredible. But that's not accurate. On 9-10, it thunderstormed for about six hours. When I asked John if it rained on 9-10, he said no. Before you read too much into this, just remember, whatever happened to Sneha, John lost his sister. Two skyscrapers near his apartment collapsed, killing nearly 3,000 people. And the world, his world, turned upside down. John remembers dining on his terrace the night of 9-10. He barbecued on a grill outside, he said. I asked twice about 9-10. The first time, John told me about dinner on his terrace, about barbecuing but he didn't mention anyone being with him. The second time, he told me that his girlfriend was there, that they barbecued together, and that she left his apartment around 1 a.m. on 9-11. At that point, he said, he went to sleep. The next morning, he awoke to a boom, American Flight 11 hitting the North Tower. At the same time, his alarm clock went off and Howard Stern came on. John heard sirens, he went out onto his terrace. He watched as debris and people tumbled out of the towers. He went inside, turned on a TV, and tried to turn on a video camera, but the battery was dead. 15 minutes later, the second plane flew right over him into the South Tower. At 9.59 a.m., when the South Tower collapsed, John was outside on his terrace. He saw, quote, a volcano coming at me. First, he was a statue. Then he ran back into his apartment. Really, the debris cloud threw him into the apartment. He was engulfed in, quote, this black smog of nothingness. The sound was overwhelming. So too was the smoke. He coughed and hacked and choked. He crawled into the hallway and lay against his front door. A neighbor who saw him guided him to an elevator and down to the basement which had a gym and communal computers. John got on a computer and spoke briefly with his mom, Anzu. He said he was okay. Security wanted residents to stay in the basement, but John ignored them and went back up to his apartment. He's not sure if that was before or after the second tower fell. He thinks after. In the apartment, John gathered stuff, including soot-covered business cards. He took a shower, went back downstairs, and someone gave him a mask. He managed to evacuate Lower Manhattan on a tugboat, which dropped him off at 31st Street. That afternoon, he walked down 2nd Avenue to a fireman's bar and had a few drinks. He knew the area, he used to live there, so he went to his old apartment 
and met up with friends. The whole time, he had a really bad sound in his ear, like a concussion. The rest of 9-11 was chaos and confusion. It was surreal. John couldn't reach anyone in his family until the next morning. On 9-12, when it became clear that Sneha was still missing, John joined the search for her. That night, he lied on WABC, saying that he spoke to Sneha the day before while she was in the towers. I asked John why he lied. He said he wanted to get Sneha on TV to help find her. I asked whose idea it was to make up a story, his or Ron's, because in 2001, Ron took responsibility, telling 2020, quote, I called John on the phone and I said, don't mention anything about Monday. Just say she's missing and we're worried. And that should be enough to get her on TV. But John said, no, it was not Ron's idea. It was his idea. About a week after 9-11, John returned to his apartment to get stuff. A few weeks after that, he moved back into the apartment, but he stayed only three days, then left for good. Living there, he said, was like watching a graveyard. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married yeah. at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. 
and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I asked John about the NYPD. He looked me in the eye and said, quote, they never even spoke with me. I asked him about the story he told Detective Stark that shortly before 9-11, he walked in on Sneha having sex with his girlfriend. He said it was false. I asked why Detective Stark would just make it up. He said, no idea. The thing is, I know John spoke with Detective Stark. I have a record proving that he did. So I watched him very closely when he lied to me. I watched his eyes. And then I kept asking questions. One major unanswered question is whether or not Sneha had a cell phone. Detective Stark thinks that she did. So does John. He also thinks she had a pager, raising the question, if Sneha had a cell phone, if she had a pager, why didn't the NYPD examine her phone, her pager, her call records? 9-11, obviously and understandably, traumatized John. He still has nightmares. He told me that he did consider the possibility that someone murdered Sneha, but he thinks it's unlikely. He also considered the idea that Sneha ran away, but he dismissed it, saying it was, quote, asinine. John is really upset with how the media handled Sneha's story. He called a prominent New York Magazine article about her case, which ran in 2006, quote, butchery. After that, he said, the family stopped cooperating with reporters. He's upset that news coverage focused on Sneha's problems and not at all on the complex, beautiful woman he knew, his sister, the human being. Tabloid coverage was especially hurtful, he said. The fact that Sneha visited lesbian bars was overhyped and sensationalized. John told me that he has seen YouTube videos theorizing about what happened to Sneha. He's unsure, though, if his son, now a teenager, has seen them. He doesn't know how his son would react 
to sensational coverage of an aunt he never met. Overall, I found John forthcoming, except about two things. One, the last time he saw Sneha, when I asked what he, Sneha, and his girlfriend did after dinner that night, eight or nine days before 9-11, he clammed up. He said he didn't want to talk about it. And two, his experience on September 10th, the day Sneha disappeared. When I asked twice about 9-10, he seemed thrown off. The second time I brought it up, he told me that his girlfriend was with him that night until about 1 a.m. on 9-11. I think John's girlfriend, now his ex-girlfriend, is indispensable. She's the key witness, but I was unable to reach her. So where does that leave us as we consider foul play, as we consider whether or not someone Sneha knew may have killed her? To me, it all goes back to a lack of a body. Without a body, it's illogical to think Sneha was murdered by anyone, either a random crazed killer or someone she knew. As for John, I don't think he's telling the truth about September 10th. I wonder, strongly, whether or not he saw Sneha that night, whether or not she went to his apartment after Century 21. But even if he did, even if she did, that does not mean he killed her. There's zero evidence of foul play. And let me point out strongly that even if someone lies, you don't necessarily know why. There are a million reasons why people lie that do not involve murder. Sneha's family, understandably, wants people to remember her in a positive light, not in a dark fog of mental illness, substance abuse, affairs, and conspiracies. They want people to remember Sneha the hero who rushed into burning towers on 9-11. Her family loves her. She loved them, especially her mom, Anzu. And that's why they do not believe one of the other pervasive theories about Sneha's disappearance, that she used 9-11 as cover to run away, to start a new life. She wouldn't do that to them. It could not have been Sneha who mailed a postcard of the burning towers with the message, everyone who knew me before 9-11 believes I'm dead. Next time on Missing on 9-11. How does somebody just get a, a new passport, no ID, that quick, and just disappear? Unless you planned it. Homework this week. One, I'd like to speak to John's ex-girlfriend. Two, I'd like to speak to Sneha's friend, Tony. Three, did you live at 88 Greenwich Street on 9-11? Four, did you know Sneha in Italy in the 90s? Do you have any of her paintings? If so... You can reach us by phone at 1-833-NEW-TIPS. That's 1-833-639-8477. Again, 1-833-639-8477. Or you can reach us via email at tips at iheartmedia.com. That's tips, T-I-P-S, at iheartmedia.com. Ben Bolin is our executive producer. Paul Deccan is our supervising producer. Chris Brown is our assistant producer. Seth Nicholas Johnson is our producer. Sam Teagarden is our research assistant. And I'm your host and executive producer, John Walzak. Cover art by Pam Peacock. Special thanks to Tamika Campbell at iHeart and to Christoph Zappri in New Orleans. Also, thank you to Mark Bogatin, Detective Richard Stark, John Phillip, and Aesop Rock. Original theme music by Aesop Rock. Check out Aesop's website at aesoprock.com. You can find me on Twitter at, at John Walzak. J 
J-O-N-W-A-L-C-Z-A-K. If you like this show, check out our first season, Missing in Alaska, about the 1972 disappearance of two congressmen. Missing on 9-11 is a co-production of iHeartRadio and Greenfort Media. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app. Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.